0: Welcome to Off The Wall, a podcast aimed at helping you answer the questions, what is the point of my wealth, and what steps can I take to make that vision a reality? Your
1: host, David Armstrong, co-founder of Monument Wealth Management, and Jessica Gibbs, director of private wealth design at Monument, will tap into their over 25 years of combined experience in wealth management to help you answer these challenging but important questions. Interested in learning more? Connect with us on Instagram, at Monument Wealth, and follow along at MonumentWealthManagement.com. Now, here are your hosts, Dave and Jessica. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of Off the Wall. It's me, Dave Armstrong, and my co-host, Jessica Gibbs. Hey, everyone. Before we get going with today's episode, we just want to say thanks to everybody for listening to Off the Wall. And whether you're a first-time listener or you've been following along from the start, we would love to know what you think about the show and any suggestions for improvement. And also, here's how you can help us keep this project going. If you could please subscribe, leave a five-star review, and if you think it's worthy, leave a very quick review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. It's the reviews and the subscriptions that make it easier for other people to find and follow the show. And then finally, you can always follow Monument on both Instagram and Facebook under Monument Wealth Management And then, of course, you can always email the entire team at info at monumentwm.com with any suggestions or ideas for future guests. We all really appreciate your support with that project. And with that out of the way, kind of introducing today's topic, Jessica and I have been having some conversations about trust and estate planning for our clients. And an interesting topic came up in that We spend a lot of time talking about creating the trust and estate plan, the framework for it, and having all the legal documents set up. But what we figured out was that we're not doing a whole lot of talking about what happens after the trust and estate plan goes into effect, or administering the trust and estate plan. So when people pass away and the trust and estate plan is in place, there is somebody behind who's actually doing the administration of the trust. And we thought that that would be a really terrific topic to talk about today. And Jessica, I think that this is a really interesting topic because no one really thinks about all the work that goes into this.
2: It's hard enough sometimes to even write your estate documents because no one really wants to think about dying or what would happen to your family or your kids if you weren't around. But usually, once people get over the hurdle of writing their will or their trust or their power of attorney, then they're kind of like, oh, okay, that's done. It's out of the way. I feel better now. But then no one ever thinks through, Okay, if something really catastrophic happened and I'm not around, would my family be able to sort of take care of closing my estate? What does that even mean? What would be the responsibilities of this person that I've listed as executor in my will? These sorts of things that, again, it's the hard realities of death that no one wants to think through.
1: And so as we were talking about that, we actually created a new friend who's going to be the first guest on the Off the Wall podcast from Outside Monuments. So today we're introducing Leah Del Percio from True State, and she is an expert in doing the Administration of Trusts, and we're really excited to have her on as a guest because she's going to talk about all of this great stuff that Jessica and I really don't know a whole lot about because neither one of us have ever done this. So, Leah, welcome.
0: Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to chatting with you and your listeners all about this process. So let's dive in
2: with some basics. As Dave was just kind of saying, neither he or I personally have ever served in the role of executor. So just to set the scene, can you tell us a little bit about what's involved in closing an estate? I hear and talk about the word
0: probate a lot. What is probate and what does that process entail? I think there's a big misconception when people think about after they pass away and what needs to be done. People often conflate the term probate with estate administration, where they think, oh, I have to avoid probate. And the idea of doing that makes it so that there's nothing else to do, everything's seamless, everything goes pursuant to the will or trust or whatever plan is in place for that person. But that's a common misconception. So probate by itself is simply the legal process of authenticating a will so that that executor, as it's termed in some states, or personal representative, as it's termed in others, gets appointed with the authority to act on behalf of that estate. So in a way, probate is really just opening the gates for the estate administration process. In some states, it can be considered more difficult than others and there's higher filing fees and things like that. And I think that's where the idea of avoiding probate comes in. But in many states, probate really isn't this large administrative hurdle. And in all states, once probate is over, or once probate has been granted and that estate representative gets letters testamentary or an executor's certificate or whatever it's called, where they have the authority to act on behalf of that estate, that's where all of the time that a loved one spends handling the estate, closing the estate, making distributions, funding trusts, things like that starts to happen. So in a way, probate, again, is sort of the gates for all of this administrative work to even start. That's great.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think from financial planning perspective, we're kind of at the intersection between a state and tax, for example. So you start thinking as your executor, it's not just going to court, but it's from the tax perspective, it's filing a final income tax return. You know, that has to be done by the same April 15th deadline as you would your personal income tax when you're alive. Part of that could be thinking about what to do with delayed medical expenses from the person who passed away Do you kind of hold on to those and claim them as a deduction on that final income tax return. But that means they have to be paid out from the estate. So that means potentially keeping the estate open longer. And then also one of the things we talk about a lot with our clients is the Form 706 estate tax return. And the biggest thing I always bring up with clients is electing portability, which you're the lawyer, so <laughs> correct me if I have this wrong. but <laughs> Portability is essentially a way for, if your spouse passed away, a way for you to claim your deceased spouse unused exclusion, which could be really important when it comes to estate tax or gift tax or generation skipping transfer tax, particularly in an environment where we are right now, where those exemption amounts are very high, but that law is set to sunset. And also we have a new administration, a new Congress that may be seeking to do tax reform that could lower those exemptions amounts, which could make it a state tax, for example, have a bigger impact on a
0: larger number of people. You're absolutely right. So those are all things that executors or personal representatives must be thinking about during an administration. But even that work isn't all of the time-consuming tasks and things that have to get done. So it's things like locating assets. We think about what we each have and how many accounts and subscriptions I know I have, and then God forbid I lose a close loved one, trying to think through everything that they have and figure that out, it often becomes this discovery game that can be uniquely awful when you're grieving the loss of that person. So everything from filing life insurance claims, closing out bank accounts, negotiating with and ultimately paying creditors, so paying some of those expenses, knowing that there's an order in which those expenses may need to be paid depending on your state and depending on that estate itself, getting date of death values, notifying government agencies like Social Security or the VA, coordinating with all of the interested parties in that estate, And then to your point, filing taxes and it's first the income tax return, which I think a lot of people forget about. Then it's determining whether that estate had income and possibly filing an estate income tax return. And then to your point, which I think is great, and I love hearing you talk about portability because it's something for people who are trying to transfer wealth is crucial right now, depending on your net worth, particularly because the large estate tax exemptions that really don't come into play in many people's lives at this point, because they are so high, are scheduled to sunset in 2025. And they may go down with a new administration coming in because it is sort of a political hot button issue. So we see those rise and fall over the years. So why not use it and take advantage of porting the spouse's exemption?
2: So what are some of the common pitfalls that you have seen over the course of your career as a
0: lawyer working with clients, common pitfalls in closing an estate? Sure, so I think people often think that, okay, I have my will, I have my trust, I'm all set. But oftentimes that will hasn't been updated. So someone could have moved from one state to another didn't know to update their documents, and now they're in a new state which has different trusts and estates laws, different tax laws. Maybe they're in a state with an inheritance tax where they could have had a better plan. So people aren't updating documents, even if they have them, as much as they should be in most cases, but also those documents just design the buckets where things go. They don't take the water from the estate bucket to those, whether it's beneficiaries or trusts, and that process is just, riddled with pitfalls. So I have plenty of stories. I would say that the biggest thing that I see is the scattered nature in which people hold their wealth. So oftentimes people have bank accounts spread out across several different institutions, retirement accounts all over the place from every job they've had. And I have to say probably 80 plus percent of the estates I deal with, the person had a retirement account that they set up from their first job when they were done with college and it didn't have a named beneficiary on it because they didn't have a spouse or children. And that goes through their estate. So even if they're someone who tried to, quote unquote, avoid probate funded irrevocable trust, they still end up having to administer the estate through the probate courts even, just to deal with that retirement account. So we spend the bulk of our time consolidating retirement accounts, doing rollovers for people, and really consolidating assets across scattered financial institutions.
1: I'm sorry i interrupt. That's such an interesting topic because one of the things that we come across all the time is people saying, well, I want to diversify my asset management teams or I want to diversify because diversification is good, So why wouldn't I have a couple of different advisors? And that actually starts to compound the problem when the trust is being administered. That actually creates more work than you're probably solving with having all these, the dispersion of your assets all over the place. And I don't know if people really start thinking through that when they're creating their trust estate plan or creating their asset management plan.
0: You're so spot on with that. People often think of diversification as having... 10 checking accounts across 10 different local banks that all have different verification of who that executor is. So it becomes a real pain in the neck for their loved ones after they pass away, not diversifying their investments. So I think one great tip that people can have is to tell their wealth manager about where they have money, even whether it's with that wealth manager or not, and then start to think about consolidating it in one place from an administrative point that's much, much easier. I'm curious from the investment standpoint where you sit, whether you see that as problematic or as something that can really be beneficial, but I see it as on the administration side as being
1: incredibly beneficial. Yeah, I think sometimes we encounter people just, they don't wanna show all their cards and it is helpful to us. And we, at Monument, we have a lot of technology that allows for account aggregation. So we feel like we're very successful with our clients in aggregating at least the information into one place, even if all the assets aren't here, in a way that is useful to somebody who is going to administer an estate. But yeah, it's it's interesting to see how much people don't disclose everything. And I don't think that there's a whole lot of benefit to that, especially at the end to somebody who is going to be left with dealing with all of this, which Sounds like it could be very complicated and could take potentially years to settle something like this out.
0: Yes, you're absolutely right. And it's really not just a problem for those who are extremely, extremely wealthy throughout my career, settling hundreds of estates. Really, that wealth, yes, there's more tax planning that needs to be done on the administration side when someone is of a certain net worth, but generally the administrative tasks are just as much a pain in the neck for an insolvent estate, if not more, than they are for someone worth hundreds of millions of dollars. So. I think there's an interesting misconception there where people think, oh, I don't have an estate. I don't need to do anything now to plan. And this isn't going to be a headache for my loved ones because I don't have anything. But what they might have is a bunch of credit card debt that needs to get settled, where it actually is going to become even more of a stressor for that person who's left doing that while they're grieving. So we really try to handle that for people. And frankly, we do it with their financial team. We see that financial plan, to your point, as inextricably linked to their estate plan and the administration side. And that's really where I think we can come in and best serve clients.
1: Maybe you can take a few minutes and talk about what TrueState does and maybe tell the listeners how you work with people, how people engage you, and what the services are that you provide that alleviates some of the pain that is associated with doing all of this after a loved one has passed away, because I want to then segue into a question where we say like, okay, if no one's died yet, what should people be doing right now? Because that's when the horse has left the barn, it's a totally different story. We could tell horror stories all day long, but I would love for you to tell us more about what your company does and how you help people and then use that as a bridge into like, what should people be doing now?
0: Sure, so I guess I should start by talking about my background a little bit. So I'm actually a recovering trust and estates lawyer, have practiced for over a decade, working with those spanning from modest wealth to the ultra, ultra high net worth individuals that live in this world and families. And throughout my time and my career in doing so, I realized that estate administrations are mostly made up of administrative work. There's limited legal work that needs to be done, but people were really happy to be paying lawyers to do all of these administrative tasks because they become such a pain point for someone when they lose someone. And people also don't realize that this is work that could be done and outsourced more affordably. So our mission is to provide affordable and accessible estate administration services to people where we go in, we can work with estates of any any size at any point in the process and really handle all of the paperwork associated with losing someone. So if you think about it in your own life, we've all sat on hold with a cable company or tried to cancel a Verizon account. Now imagine trying to do that for someone else, but add on that you have to prove that the person has died, prove that you have the authority to act on their behalf via those letters from the probate court, all while telling everyone you speak to about how your loved one passed away and constantly having to relive that horrible moment in your life just over and over and over again and then getting transferred to a different call center to do it again. The process just becomes so painstaking for people and it truly is a full-time job. In fact, that's even why states allow executors and personal representatives to take a commission because it's the worst kind of work. So what we do is we alleviate that burden. We do all of those tasks for people People. We do it at an affordable price point, and if they do need a lawyer during their estate administration, we work with that lawyer to help to minimize the cost of those legal bills. In fact, even the simplest estate takes over 34,000 minutes, regardless of whether you have a lawyer, of personal time for that executor or personal representative to settle. And frankly, you're absolutely right. The process takes over a year. So we really are that value add that's coming in at someone's darkest moment. So they don't have to do this. We ease that burden for them and do it in a way that's affordable and accessible for really estates of any size. That's great.
2: So obviously huge value add for someone who is serving in the role of executor. I mean, I love your shout out to working with someone's financial team, particularly while they're alive and what people can do Either with True State or on their own if they're a DIYer before someone passes away.
0: I think that that financial planner, and I just think it's such an important role and for everyone to have, no matter what your net worth, because they often end up quarterbacking a lot of this. Without a True State involved, people lean on one of the relative's financial planners often to ask them all of the administrative questions because they know anytime they call a lawyer, they're going to get billed for it. So (laughs) I think it becomes a huge pain point for the family financial advisor in a way that is just not beneficial to really anyone involved. So that's, I think, where we can come in handy and really help people. And frankly, I think the reason it becomes a pain point is because... Usually that financial planner is so tied to that family. They are the relationship manager that knows all of the nuance. And that's why I think it's so important in the planning process to have that financial planner really work with that estate lawyer to draft the appropriate documents and get a full estate plan that works because there's so much nuance behind it and they are truly managing the relationship. Yeah, I think about everyone's healthy,
2: everyone's happy, that sort of situation and thinking through, okay, you're writing your estate documents. I mean, a lot of the things that we talk about with clients at Monument is who are going to be these people that you are selecting to serve as your executor or your agent or your power of attorney. And make sure, first off, it's someone that you can trust, someone who <laughs> you think is going to- That's why they call it a trustee. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> and the importance of doing those things now, I think in terms of like, when it comes to estate documents, some people have like decision paralysis of, I don't know who I want to be the guardian of my kids, so I'll just kind of sit on this until someone comes to mind. Or my health is okay now, even though I'm getting older, it'll be fine. But people's health can decline really, really quickly as they age. So essentially doing those things now, planning for end-of-life care, too, is another thing we talk about a lot with clients. There used to be long-term care insurance policies they don't really exist anymore or, or even like affordable anymore because medical care has gotten so much better. People are living longer that these policies are really not profitable for the insurance companies. So it's really on the consumer to plan to save, invest, and eventually self-pay those expenses. So those are things that I tend to think about while someone is still alive and healthy and has all their faculties. But I think about Something that an estate planning attorney said to me long ago, and it's really stuck with me, is essentially like, when someone's dead, they're dead. Everyone knows what that means to be dead. It's very finite. But if someone is incapacitated, that's really fuzzy. What does incapacitated mean? And it does not have the same finite definition the way death does. So what, from your perspective can a power of attorney or an agent do if you do become incapacitated? So you're not dead yet. We don't need a state administration yet, but you're kind of in the in-between. Knock on wood, hopefully that doesn't happen.
0: So I think something that's important that people miss is while they're doing their planning, they need to notify the people that they're naming in these roles, for instance, acting as an attorney, in fact, in a power of attorney or a healthcare representative or proxy, as it's known in some states. a living will that hey you're going to be named in this role here's where my stuff is and frankly to your point earlier there's an element of trust you need to have with that person so oftentimes there's the idea of something called a springing power of attorney i don't know if you've ever heard of it i personally Back in my days of being an estate planner would almost never use them because what a springing power of attorney means is that when you're incapacitated, that POA springs into action. And that's the only time that that person that you've designated to act for you can act for you. Administratively, that becomes a major problem because you have to constantly prove over and over and over again that that person is incapacitated. So you may go to a bank, get a doctor's note, it's good for literally five days, and then you have to go back and get another doctor's note. So if someone is in the hospital in a coma, that can become, first of all, it's incredibly stressful, but having to go and continue to get recertifications can be quite a pain point as well. So many estate planners, rightly so, usually only use a general durable power of attorney that doesn't spring into action. As soon as you name that person and sign your POA form, they can act for you. And some people can use that as a matter of convenience. I know when I sold my home, my husband is my attorney in fact. He went and I couldn't attend the closing for the sale. He signed on my behalf, used our power of attorney and attached it. And it was actually very convenient for someone who is busy running a business. So there's ways to use it as a matter of convenience. Areas where I see a pitfall are when your children reach age 18, you as a parent no longer have the legal authority to act for them and they need to sign for themselves on things, whether it's medical decisions in a living will and medical power of attorney or a financial general durable power of attorney. So I see that as an area where as advisors, we should all be telling our clients as their children reach their 18th birthday, hey, get a power of attorney and living well, if nothing else. So I think that's something that people can do now. But if you've become incapacitated as far as what your power of attorney and agent can do, I suggest using a general durable power of attorney. That way you don't run into these issues with not being able to prove that that person is incapacitated. And frankly, if you don't trust the person that you're naming to act as your attorney in fact, you shouldn't be naming them anyway. If you don't trust someone to act for you the second you sign the document, then you do not have the right person named.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. One of the things I always get scared about, or not scared about, but worried about, is if you have a power of attorney, how many times, if ever, have you seen A financial institution or someone else say like, yeah, we just don't recognize that. Sorry.
0: Many. It's interesting. So powers of attorney and living wills are an operation of each state's laws. So each state has very different requirements for what needs to be in their power of attorney. In fact, New York, for example, has their power of attorney, the font has to be a certain size and they have special language that has to be in that document or else it's completely invalid. So oftentimes you see financial institutions, it's a point of confusion for them because you have all 50 states. Some states have a similar very draconian requirement like New York and they won't accept anything outside of that or a custom document. So each institution sometimes comes up with their own power of attorney that they require prior to accepting as a way to sort of hedge all of these different varying state requirements And that can be a real pain point for people but that's why it's so important when you're doing your estate plan to seek out an attorney that's in your state of residence so if i and this is something people often forget they'll move from one state to another and not update their estate planning documents and If I move from Maryland to New York, my Maryland power of attorney is no longer valid as a New York resident. If I'm incapacitated and my attorney, in fact, goes into the bank to withdraw funds to pay for my medical expenses, that power of attorney is not going to be accepted by a New York institution. They need a New York power of attorney.
1: What about a situation where somebody has an account, I'll just make a bank XYZ and Their charter is in the state of New York, but they're a resident of Maryland. And then there's a death and somebody has a power of attorney. They live in Maryland. Is it possible that a financial institution in another state wouldn't recognize the Maryland state of attorney just because they are not located in Maryland as well? And I'm kind of tying that into, isn't that another example of having accounts all over the place exacerbating the problem?
0: So I actually think that when there's a death, first of all, the power of attorney is not valid anymore because it's a document during your lifetime. But say the person was incapacitated and that often becomes a problem, by the way. So if you have an attorney, in fact, who's different than that personal representative, it can become a big pain point. But yes, to your point, each institution can require its own documents. And generally, if you fight them hard enough, they'll accept the document of the state of residence of the person who filled out that document. But that often involves a lawyer getting involved and it can take too long. And oftentimes when you're an attorney, in fact, for someone during their life and there's an emergency, obviously, and they can't act for themselves, time is usually of the essence to get funds out or make a transfer or things like that. And I think that's why it's so important to have some consolidation and then also to let your And I call them fiduciaries. That's the legal term for someone who would be in the role of an attorney in fact or the representative after you pass away to really let them know where things are and to let them know where your documents are. So that way it
1: defrays any of those issues. That's an interesting ties back into that. Let's say nobody's died yet. What should people be doing right now? Maybe one of the things that should be getting audited and reviewed by financial advisors, lawyers, and actual people is, do I have accounts custodied in states that are different than where I have a power of attorney? Because if I am incapacitated, would somebody who has power of attorney be able to get funds to help me out if it's in another state? And is that something that people should be taking a look at?
0: I don't think it's as much of an issue as you think it is just because of where the charter is. Generally, they'll accept it based on your state of residence. So usually, unless they're a very small institution in which ways you can write them an angry letter. But generally, as long as you're in the right state of residence and you have the right document, so if you're a resident of New York and you have a New York power of attorney, even if your bank is in Delaware or Virginia, they're gonna be fine with it. Where you see the issue is when someone lives in a different state than what their document was prepared for. So the example of, I lived in Maryland, had my estate plan done, now I live in New York, I'm a resident of New York. I'm in a coma, and I don't have a New York power of attorney. That's where you really see that problem coming up, more so than where the bank is actually
1: located. Okay. Well, I'm glad it's not as bad. <laughs> yeah, it's not that <laughs> As awful. I thought it was. But the point is still really valid in that there should be a review by people, whether they're people like Monument or the clients themselves or attorneys, and constantly be asking yourself, You may think the paperwork, you set it and forget it. But if you moved, if I moved from Virginia to Maryland, I would have a problem on my hands and not really probably think twice. If I moved five miles across the river, I wouldn't really think much about my documents. But that could be a huge liability for somebody.
0: Oh, you're absolutely right. And it's interesting, we have a new product offering called the True State Toolkit. And it looks at all of those moments in people's lives that cause a change that they may need to update their estate plan form. And then it gives them recommendations on steps they can take now to have a plan that isn't gonna make their estate administration a giant headache if they were to pass away. And we actually, from the data we've seen from responses and people using our toolkit, moving is the biggest one. So many people move and don't update their estate planning documents. And that's not even getting into things where it's like a divorce, where you have children from different marriages and people still have their old documents in place. I mean, it could be a real nightmare, particularly in looking at things that travel outside of a will, like a retirement account. Oftentimes, in many states, if once you get a divorce and the judgment of divorce has been issued, many states have a statute that cancels out that ex-spouse as a beneficiary, even if you have not updated your beneficiary form on, say, a retirement account. However, people often just don't do it after the fact to name their new spouse and then it travels through the estate so you see that being an issue you also see it where divorces can take a really long time and sometimes people die during them and then that spouse that they were estranged from and in the process of getting a divorce from actually now is their executor their trustee and the sole beneficiary of their entire estate because that rule where they get canceled out as a beneficiary only comes into play after that divorce divorce decree has been finalized and that actually has happened i've seen it many 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 times in very very stressful divorces where the spouses hated each other and it's one passed away and now they're in control of literally everything so it's interesting how people don't realize when they need to update things so you brought up the
2: concept of your spouse passing away so let's assume it's not a divorce situation which that sounds horrible. Amusing and horrible (laughs) at the same time as an outsider, not someone part of it. But let's say it was a loving marriage and your spouse has passed away. Is there any special considerations that you as the surviving spouse needs to be thinking about?
0: Yes, certainly. And you guys brought up the point before, which is really, really prudent of you as advisors, which is portability. So in many states, again, if you're nearing that exemption amount or you've accumulated, I would say anywhere over $4 million, you should be doing a portability return, which means you have to get all the date of death values for everything that's owned, get everything appraised, and file an informational return with the IRS. In a state like Maryland, actually, you can do it at the state level at this point as well. And ultimately, that helps you capture that deceased spouse's Exemption amounts so that if the numbers go down as far as the thresholds, you have an additional buffer for when you pass away. But also rolling over retirement accounts, those need to be done and usually there's a time limitation on them taking the RMD distribution from that spouse's, the deceased spouse's retirement if they didn't take it in the year of death. So those are things that often need to be done that can be extremely, extremely painstaking. We have some estates that we work on that it's literally just all we're doing is doing rollover paperwork for that spouse. And it would take them hundreds of hours to do where they to do it on their own. So we see that very often also Looking at appraising your home, for instance, to make sure, again, you get to capture a step up in basis on assets at death. So in order to avoid capital gains tax on certain assets, you're going to want to capture that. So you may need to get appraisals done. And then obviously consolidating everything that was in the quote unquote estate into an estate account. And then what people often forget too, is making sure that everything that's going to a beneficiary, even if it's say a spouse and Maybe there's a little bit that's left to children or something. Just having everyone sign a settlement agreement at the end prior to distribution, waiving that liability of the executor or personal representative and really helping to protect them and insulate them from any lawsuits down the road where something to come up where someone claims that, say, they didn't sell a stock, they held something for too long and they lost money on it or something like that. People tend to get weird about things when there's a death in the family and they're entitled to money. So really, really want to capture and protect the person who's named in that role, even if it is a spouse.
2: That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about liability to a personal representative or executor.
0: Yeah, it's a big, big and oftentimes can be heavily, heavily litigated. And what stinks is in an estate litigation, everyone loses because it just drains that money of the estate through legal fees. And frankly, our belief is that the money that somebody worked hard for during their life needs to really go to their intended beneficiaries, not to a bunch of lawyers who are helping facilitate a battle between family members over something trivial. So
2: for someone who's a DIYer and wants to and needs to administer their loved one's estate, but doesn't necessarily want to go to the path of hiring an estate administrator like True State. Do you have any recommended resources that person can check out in order to educate themselves? Because I think one of the biggest things that I'm taking away from this conversation with you is how complicated this is. I mean, the New York State font thing on your power of attorney, (laughs) that blew my mind. The other thing I was thinking in the back of my head while I listened to you was like, this is yet another reason to hire a qualified locally barred attorney
0: rather than going through legal Zoom or whatever online place. Absolutely. So I think the planning process, it's really, really important to hire competent counsel and work with a competent assistant, someone who is a lawyer for that work. Again, the administration side is literally just moving things from one bucket to another. It's a lot of legwork and a lot of hours and it can get complicated. But generally, if you have everything planned well, you can use a service like True State or you can do it yourself. Again, it's going to take you hundreds of hours. but There's plenty of guides on the internet and checklists you can use to make sure you're doing everything okay. My tips would be keep track of every single estate expense, keep track of every asset, the income that that asset produces, as well as the appreciation, because you need to keep really great books and records, every expense that's spent and really keep track of every payment that's made. There's a lot of things that people can reimburse themselves for that they don't realize or take as a deduction. So again, you can always contact True State for help with that. And then we have some resources on our website. We have a blog about what to gather from a house right when you lose someone that can really help people to get the process started. And There's websites like AARP, for instance, has some good resources and some great checklists for things that you're going to need to do during an administration. We also came out with a guide. It's a little booklet which explains things that people may need to think about during an administration and gives them guidance and some good tips for things. And then if it gets more complicated or becomes a pain, we can always step in and help people.
2: That's great. Thanks, Leah. No problem. Dave, anything you want to add?
1: No, I just, I think that's so great. I never really knew that an organization like this existed, that actually you could outsource all of this too. And I think listening to all these stories, especially the thing about the font, I mean, that's just something that would absolutely make me pull my hair out. And it's just so great to know that there are options for people to outsource all of this to somebody who has the expertise in doing it and can really look at the value proposition of, is this worth me doing all myself and taking away from my time and my career and my family to deal with, or should I be applying some financial resources to outsourcing this to somebody who can get it done efficiently and effectively and keep me out of trouble with this, keep all my tax filings done right, and help me get through this as quickly and painlessly as possible, even if there's a little bit of upfront cost associated with it. I just, I don't know how much people know. I don't know how versed people are in the opportunity to outsource something like this. I certainly wasn't aware of it. And I shudder at the thought now of having to administer an estate after hearing all of this. And I think that the value proposition is really solid with this and I'll encourage people to reach out. I know you're going to give us some information that we're going to be able to host on our website for people to download and get in touch with you that you're going to make available to us that normally is something that you charge people for and I think that's very generous but we'll put the information for that in the show notes and give people a way to link to that but I just think this is such a fantastic offering and I hope people reach out to you and learn more about this and at least go to your website cuz you do have a website correct? Yeah, great. We will link that as well, but that was my final thought. And I feel like we could probably keep going over this for another hour. There's just so much <laughs> to learn about it that most people don't know.
2: Yeah, I think this was a great primer, Leah. Thank you so much. I learned a few things in the process of talking to you.
0: Yeah, no problem.
1: <laughs> great. We'd love to have you on again, too, Is I'm sure we'll be fielding some questions on this from people and we'll certainly be thinking of ways to get you back on and talk about some other topics. But I think this was great eye opener for everybody.
0: Awesome. Well, glad to be
1: of service and sounds great great well that's a wrap for this episode of off the wall and jessica and i really appreciate everybody listening in and if you have any questions please reach out to us or go to the show notes and get some information on how you get in touch with leah at true state and of course you can always reach out to jessica and i at monument and we'll get you in touch with her as well but really want to thank you for coming on and look forward to having you on again leah
0: sounds great thanks again thanks for having me